Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome back to the School of Laughs podcast. This is Rick Roberts, and today we've got a great special guest here, Scott Dunn. He'll be with us in just a second. I want you guys to uh, continue to send in the iTunes reviews. Those are great. We'll read them here on the on the episode. And also remember to check us out at schooloflast.com. We've got all kinds of great information and blog posts each day for you on there. So I'm here with Scott Dunn today. Scott has written for TV shows. He's written for other comics. He's written a book or two. He's done a lot of writing in his time. Scott, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself before we get into the big meat of the interview. Okay, well, I am a uh, former stand-up comedian. I did that for several years. I had a regular segment on the Bob and Tom Show, a national syndicated radio show for several years. And I kind of just moved into writing for uh, other comics on television programs. I've uh, worked on, I've written several CMT awards, a couple Dove awards, Foxworthy's Big Night Out, uh, a lot of stuff with Jeff Foxworthy. are you smarter than a fifth grader? Right. I noticed you were a, cons- a what they a s- consultant. They call you a consultant uh-huh. because it pays less than me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that's a joke, right? right. Oh, everything was always a joke writer, you know. Uh, the American Bible Challenge. Right. So pretty busy guy. Um, I think you got to be a smart guy to be able to plug into those different types of writing for other people. And something that I've done very little of is writing for other people. Writing for myself can be tough enough. And I know those that are listening are primarily writing for yourself. Why do you think people should even consider having a writer join the, join them when they start writing their material? Well, what, know, what are the advantages? One of the things I get often when people find out, you know, I'm writing on a show or whatever, they're like, well, these people don't write their own material. Well, no, they do. But when you're on television, like if you see an episode every week, you think, well, they have a whole week to come up with the material, and there's some shows, I guess, like Saturday Night Live or whatever, that might be the case, but most of the time, they record everything in a week. They'll record like 12 episodes in a week. Right. So it's just like, and you don't really start until like a few days before. Right. So you write everything in a week for a whole season, and nobody can keep up with that pace on their own. Plus, if they're hosting, mm-hmm. they're in makeup, they have to do all of the... Uh, the promo the and, and all, that. all that stuff all happens right then during that week. So you just have a guy like me who sits back and has nothing to do but <laughs> just think of funny jokes. Um, you know, like on American Bible Challenge, which is my most recent uh, with, with Jeff Foxworthy, I would get the questions that morning for the day's show because okay. it's a quiz show, so they have to be very secret. So I can't have them like a week in advance or anything. Right. So can I get you them, tip anybody off? So we all get them that morning. So I read them before Jeff comes in. And then he comes in, and then we'll read the questions, and then we'll just banter jokes back and forth. I'll have some, he'll have some. And then the ones he likes, I just write down. And then when he goes to uh, tape the episode, he's hosting. There's people in his ear saying, hey, we got a commercial. Here's the sc-. He's got a million things coming up. So when a question will come up, I'll come, oh, this is the one you liked about the joke about this, and I just whisper that much, and then, I mean, the guy is amazing, and he wrote the joke most likely anyhow, and right. so it's just like, boom, and and that's why, like, on a television show, 
But when you say why write for somebody, that's what comedians do that anyhow. When you're an open micer, you find your open micer buddies and you go to a coffee shop and you banter back and forth jokes and you have premises and you help each other write jokes. And one of the reasons I realized I was a good writer is because when I would do that, they would leave and they would have two or three good jokes and I would have nothing. And they didn't bring anything Yeah, they, they, I got nothing. And I started to realize, <laughs> I'm a better writer than most of these. And you're the guy paying for their coffee. Like, you got nothing out of it. Yeah, I got nothing out of it. You lost three hours and gave away all good material. That's right. And, then, and you're kind of thinking to yourself, and, you know, and, and some of them are better than others, but sometimes they just show up and like, milk. Maybe I should do a joke about milk. <laughs> right. So you even come up with the premise and the point. It's like, yeah. why did I just keep my mouth shut and I wrote the joke about, you know, whatever. Yeah, so, so you notice pretty early on that, you know, you got the gift for the, not only the joke part, which is the funny part where you all try to get to those punchlines, but the premise, I think, doesn't get nearly enough focus, uh, especially when you start writing. You just want to get to the funny part as fast as you can, right? Right, right. Um, and I notice with the speakers, sometimes they've got a long three or four minute story that's got one big payoff at the end of that time. But for a comic, it's a lot more, it's a quicker pace, right? There's a more economy of words to worry about. Economy of words is the right thing to say. Um, Because, you know, there's a punchline, and then there's a setup, and then everything else is wasted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that helps me write for myself, for others, whoever, is to type it all on the computer. Because if you write it shorthand, it's just harder to, to do it. But if you get it typed up and then you can edit you can start to just cut words and mm-hmm. cut words, and it's it's funny. You realize you just three extra words, and the joke's not funny anymore. Right. And it, it makes no sense. And it's I guess I don't know if it's a science. I don't know if it's an I don't know what it is, but it's like and you get that sense after a while when you work on it. But you know. Well, I think so. I mean, before I used to write stuff, before I typed it up, before computers came along. Right. I right. started comedy before computers. I think you did too, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's a, a couple old guys here hanging out. Right. Um, but I would write it out, and then I'd cross it out. But then I had to rewrite it. Computers made it so easy to visualize what you're putting out, and pretty soon I realized that, you know, just just by looking at it, I could tell if it was taking too long to get to the punchline. You know what I mean? Like if my premise was more than two sentences on a computer screen or two lines, that's way too long. I got to get there quicker and be more concise. And it's the world we live in too. It's not just Joe. It's blogs. I mean. A blog, a wordy blog is an unread blog. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to be a tight, and it's just, that's how people think. It's how they've been fed for so many years. Like, I watch comedies with my boys. I have young boys. Like an Abbott Costello, uh-huh. Abbott Costello comedy, or just any of those. And, you, and it's almost like, it, it feels so lumbering to you. It's right, just so right. slow before anything funny happens. And you realize it's just, the world was at a different pace. And then you watch you know any Madagascar or Shrek or whatever you know just any of that kind of stuff for kids and it's just pop 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 you know yeah something I noticed that with the Lego movie I went and saw that and they almost tried to shoehorn too much dialogue into that movie yeah and it's really cramming it in there so there's a balance you got to reach between the two does that come down to your rhythm and your pace you know in your own delivery when you when you're writing for other people I'm guess do you hear their voice in your head kind of and the, and the rhythm and the cadence of the joke or is that secondary to the joke itself? You know, that's funny. I am, um, for me, I've gotten complimented over the years because I've written for a really wide variety of people and sometimes people who aren't even comedians. Like sometimes like an actress will become the host of a, a comedy show. Sure. Like I did, I wrote the monologues for a CMT comedy stage and uh, 
the host was an actress. She was on the Reba McIntyre show, yeah. right? Yeah. And she was a funny actress, mm -hmm. but she wasn't a comedian. So in terms of style, I had no style to base that off of. And and then I've written for something like like Jeff Foxworthy or Bill Engvall, and he hosted a CMT Awards that mm -hmm. I wrote for one time. And so you know their voice very clearly, but I've found that uh, you start with the joke. Regardless. And then they put their voice on it, is how I've always felt about it. Now, there's parameters, like if you're writing for a Lisa Lampanelli, you know, you can say almost You've got anything. A wide range. Yeah, and if yeah. you know if you're writing for a Jeff Foxworthy, you're not you're not gonna write a dirty joke for Jeff Foxworthy, and uh, and like Bill Engvall's a storyteller, and he's gonna you know even in a monologue, it's gonna be more jokey, but it's gonna have a story or right. feel to it, you know. And but yeah, they'll they'll put that in there themselves if you have the funny joke, you know. And how does it feel when you've written some material and it doesn't air? Like I'm sure, for, like is there a you know, a rough ratio of you write 10 jokes to get three on the air or, or is on a good day would you get half of them on there or sometimes are you surprised and they took all of them or were they in a hurry and they just took them all? <laughs> well, you know, most of the stuff that I've written for was a, uh, with the host, it was a collaboration. Mm -hmm. Me and the host, I was just basically there to help the host, you know, in a very short period of time, like before CMT Awards or Dove Awards were get out what they want to say. So by the end, you know, it's all gonna go in there, and uh, but they still edit it down. But what is strange about it is what the producers will come in. The very this is kind of a Jeff Foxworthy is kind of one of my favorite guys in the world. And the first time I ever did a CMT awards with him, he basically told me just over the phone the jokes he had, and then I kind of filled in around them a little bit, tagged, and we'd go back and forth and back and forth. And he and I had you know a good monologue ready and. And Jeff was real happy with it, and you know, had you know, he just he'd written most of it, you know, he just he felt good about it. And the producers would go through me, and they'd say, "Hey, how's the monologue coming?" And I'd say, "I think it's about there." And they go, "Can we see it?" And I, well, let me ask Jeff, and he's like, "Nah, <laughs> there you go. Don't let him see it yet." That's great. And I didn't, it didn't make any sense to me, like, oh, you know, because he's a, you know, he's a team player. I could, I couldn't figure it out. And so that's just how we did it. And then when we showed up. Like a couple days before the thing, there was a table read. Jeff read his jokes. They liked about all of them. It was done. Well, a few years later, I did another CMT award with Bill Engvall. In the exact same deal, Bill told me, this is the angles I want to go, blah, 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 blah. And so we had it written. We had, you know, he had all his good jokes in here where he wanted them, and I filled in again. And But I gave it to the producers, producers. like two or three weeks before the show. They read it, applause breaks through it. They loved it. So I'm thinking, I'm just going to show up. I didn't live in Nashville town. I'm just going to show up in Nashville. It's going to be a little vacation. I'm just going <laughs> to sit there. And I get there. I, I roll in. One of the other writers, the first thing he says to me is, they hate the monologue. You have to. I, I, they had applause. They loved it. They go, no. They sat with it for too long. They sat there, and they would read it every day because they didn't have anything. And then all of a sudden, nothing was funny to right. them. Even though the initial response is the same that the viewers and the audience would have Yeah, because so they were the audience the first So time. now, I mean, uh, you have to rewrite a whole new monologue. Bill's not there yet. And, and it's like, you know, and, it was, and I learned, okay, 
That's why. You don't. That's why Foxworthy told me, <laughs> nah, right. we'll wait till it. Because the, the second monologue wasn't better than the first one. Right. And I'd imagine for the comic and host, you got to get familiar with all the new stuff on such a short notice that it's not going to come off as polished anyway. Yeah, right. And it, yeah, I remember one of the jokes was uh, George Jones had just won a Lifetime Achievement Award. This is, you know, a few years ago. He just won a Lifetime Achievement Award for something or another. And the joke was something to the effect of, and to prove that, you know, success hadn't changed him, he got drunk and skipped the award <laughs> ceremony. Right. And they, they applauded the so, you know, two weeks later, you know, George Jones hasn't been drinking for years. Yeah, they, they, they just completely over – their right. initial thing was funny, and then they just overthought It's got to drive you nuts. But as a writer, that's part of the process. You know, you're going to deal with all those outside forces at some point. Here's, here's what being a writer – if you're a writer, you're in the customer service business. And, and you're not serving the audience, honestly. You're serving – you know, I'm talking about television shows and things like that. You are serving the host, primarily, and the producers. And then it's kind of a negotiation between the host. But that's who you're serving. You're, and so the mistake I see, especially of comedians who become writers on these shows and they show up, they fall in love with the material. Mm-hmm. It has, that's the worst mistake you can make. It has nothing to do with you. It's, it's fulfilling their vision in a quick force. You're there just to serve them because they are so busy and we have a short period of time. So you just, if they like it, you know, their own, clearly that's staying. You never try to talk them out of theirs because right. they're the guy that got famous. They know what the audience responds to from them. And then the producers, and that, and that is a mix. I mean, sometimes you get some good ones, but then you get some they just don't know comedy. Yeah. They, they probably know production and they probably know everything else. They just don't know comedy. And a guy who's never told a joke on a stage is telling you why this piece of material won't work and this will. And you just go, okay. Right. And you just, you just got to be, you just crank them out. Yeah, you can't get too attached to it. Yeah, them. it doesn't matter. It's it, it pays fine and it's over in a week and... Uh, <laughs> and, and and you're not up there. Right. The truth is, if you bomb, or if those jokes bomb, the host is embarrassed. Producer might not get another gig. Right. Right. They really have much more writing on it. And I learned when I was uh, doing my weekly segment on the Bob and Tom show. The first few times you start doing it, you have a lot of ideas. But then after the years start going by, and it's every single week. You start running out. So I had comedian friends, and I after I got my first draft, I would send it out, and I would ask, you know, hey, you got a line here? Just you know, just help me along here. And and people would they'd fall in love with a line, mm-hmm. and they'd pester you about it. And and being on the other side, I really learned you don't have time. Now, I'm the one that's got to do it. I'm not feeling it. Quit pestering me because right. I'm, I'm in a time crunch here, right. and I'm the one that's got it. Let's move on to something I might use, you know. And tell me how that started because, I mean, you've been doing comedy for a while. You probably were at the club in Indy, and they brought you in to do a little Bob and Tom. How did the relationship mature from there to where they wanted you to do a recurring segment? And it was a history-based Yeah, segment. it was. I had – well, let me go back. Here's how I became a writer. Yeah. Can I start with that because then that will flow with this. I, um, I was a comedian. And I was uh, moving to New York City, and on New Year's Eve, I was opening for Lisa Lampanelli, who I'd never met before or anything. And I was watching her act, and for those who don't know her, she's 
a fairly <laughs> vulgar uh, insult. Comment. The queen of mean. The queen of mean, yeah. you know. And I just sat there, and, and, and this is long before anybody had heard of Lisa, you know. And I just thought of a couple insults that she could say to people that I could never get away with. Right. And, but they were funny. <laughs> That's and she, the best joke. And I said, hey, I, I'm just sitting here watching your act, and I thought of these, and if you want to do it, you can. You know, you don't. And she did them, and they got laughs. And, you know, and so she and I struck up a friendship, and I would just, you know, you know, sit down with her and she would show me what she was working on and I would just, you know, what comics do. Right. This is what comics do. They sit with other comics and they go back and forth on bits. But I realized I was really good at writing uh, roast jokes, you know, but I'm not a insult. You know, I didn't know where I could put those right. in my yeah. own life. Yeah, your, your stage persona, much more gentle, yeah, right, likable right. guy. And, uh so on Bob and Tom, I noticed they'd play a lot of songs or whatever, but I couldn't play an instrument, I couldn't sing. So I just started making up historical roast, like I did a roast of George Washington. Right. Because I would basically play it on a holiday. Because mm -hmm. then I thought to myself, every Washington's birthday, they could play the roast of George Washington. That's then I smart. did the very first Thanksgiving, where you know the pilgrim came out and it was like an insult comic. <laughs> You know, I think one of the jokes was, you know, let me stay out to the Indians, una cona chanamal, which of course means get the hell off my land, <laughs> you know, and just stuff like that. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and so it was just roast jokes, but everybody knew the references because they were, you know, they know George Washington mm -hmm. and Thomas Jefferson and they knew the pilgrims and, you know, and then I did a World War II. And then through that, Tom really liked those and he asked me to do a, you know, a history segment. Um, just a weekly history segment. So I do a little lesson, and that's, you know, that's a grind because, you know, like in stand-up, you can just tell a joke about anything you want. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're teaching a history lesson, there has to be a flow to the story. Sure. You, know? yeah. <laughs> you have to give facts. And now you're forced to write a joke about a specific fact. Like, you can't just... Right, you know. So there's that, some constraints. And that really honed me as a, a writer, honestly, because instead of just writing 25 jokes about anything and picking the best four, I had five paragraphs of information that had to have a, each one had to have a punchline on it. And so I really just had to grind it out. And you, and it's not like weightlifting where you see if you keep doing I don't, it's magic. I don't know how it works, but yeah. you just keep thinking it. And I, I write with my fingers on a computer. Like if I just tried to say jokes out loud, it would never work. So I just start typing. And it's like magic. I don't know where it comes from. I don't, I don't think it out ahead of time. I just start typing these jokes. And you know, most of them aren't good because that's how life works. But I always, you know, I always got a punchline. They always, always come out at the end. You always get them. And so that was, was that a weekly? Edit? That was a weekly thing, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was, and I'm just curious, as a stand-up too, is how, were you not having enough time to work on your act? I mean, that, that had to take some time in the front of your mind, especially. That's well, that really became a problem for me because most people, when they write stuff, it's stuff that's easily transferable into their act. Right. And for me, it was like it didn't. I didn't know place to put those things. And eventually, what I did is I made a slideshow, the history of America. And then I would basically take the best jokes from each from each of those things that like my real barn burners, and I just stick them with a picture and tell them, and it ended up being a, a real fun thing for me. But for for a year or two, it's just like 
I'm just grinding out all these jokes week after week, and then I have to just throw them away. Like right. other guys, like if you do, like Bob Zaney was a guy who had a weekly, th- but it was just funny stories from the news. Right, right. the Zaney report. So the right. best ones, he just threw in his act. So he was, it was kind of like he could write for his act while doing that. Where for me, it's like, you know, then paying nothing, you know. Right. <laughs> is, why, why am I doing this? And how, how close did you get at any point to not filling it in for the week? Or was there any time where you missed it? Or the, I mean, this was, were you still calling it in back then? Well, yeah, they, sometimes, sometimes I'd be in person and sometimes they'd set me up with a, it sounded like I was in there. Mm-hmm. Like an ISDN line? Yeah, exactly what that was. And I remember most of the time, by the time it, I would write them, basically my, um, how I did it is I'd write them a few weeks in advance because it's history, mm-hmm. you know, so right, right. it's not current events. So <laughs> I'd write them a couple weeks in advance, and so I was never stuck. Like my thought is if I just wrote the one the week of, sure. I could get myself in a mess. But I, I don't remember what it was, but I, got, I had one on Jimmy Carter. I didn't remember what it was about now, but I just knew it wasn't strong. I just knew it, and I just woke up that morning with a sick, <laughs> feeling in my stomach like right. this one is not strong and uh, and I and the luckiest thing happened to me um, Tim Wilson was on the show and he really had a axe to grind with Jimmy Carr <laughs> he just really had some just issues out of the blue just, well they're both from Georgia right. and he just had some issues with Jimmy Carter and I brought up Jimmy Carter and I got into it a little bit and then I just said I know you're a big fan of Jimmy Carter Tim or something right. like it and he just went off, from there. and I didn't have time, and and just bailed me out of it. I didn't have to finish my lesson, and I just jumped into That's my quiz magic. part, which, and it was funny, and I just, you know, and I saved myself that day. But had he not been there, I would have just laid a stinky old egg. And that is hilarious. So, yeah, well, I think for the, the comics that are listening and even the speakers that are listening, um, being two or three weeks ahead, you know, giving yourself that margin – for any kind of error or any kind of mistakes or, or to even have it simmer for a couple of weeks. You know, you don't want to put yourself on the deadline spot and you didn't and that's what right. got you through it there. Well, you know, like things like the Dove Awards or the CMT Awards, when I write a monologue for those or work with the person, I don't know much about music. I, I don't listen to much media. So like, I don't know the storylines in country music. I, I don't know the storylines in Christian music. And so to write a monologue there's a lot of research for me on that stuff. And uh, and you just, you can just worry. People think it's just, I think the magic of comedy is it's supposed to feel like it's a spontaneous thing you just thought of. But there's really a lot of work into it. And you can write a joke about anything, but you just have to, re, you have to find the interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people skip, if you find an interesting premise, then if you can, obviously it's got to be funny, but interesting is good people like to be they like to learn they like to you know you can really flavor your act or your presentation whatever with interesting as long as I mean, you obviously got to deliver the funny in that business but no yeah. I, I agree 100 i always with my students here i, I teach them that you know, your premise needs to have one of four things and definitely interesting goes a long way and something that creates tension. If you have both of those, you've got something great. And you've got something that really makes the audience thinking down a certain path. And you, if, when you layer those things in, you've, you've got a premise that is almost as good as a joke itself. It's yeah, so right. well written and crafted. And, it, and it, it'll develop your character. See, people think joke writing, there's like in comedy, like there's the joke monkeys that mm-hmm. just write the jokes. 
that's really, there's a lot of people who can write jokes. The ones who become rich and famous as performers are uh, characters. You know, Larry the Cable Guy, Lisa Lampanelli, I mean, just, and that doesn't even mean like cartoon character, but just, you know who they are. You know, you know who they are, and it's because they were personal with their things. I, I, I think I've told you this in the past, but I once worked with a real young comic who was 17 or so, and he was telling jokes about bad hotels and like the stock, stocky right. premises. But yet he was trying to meet women, and his dad drove him to all the shows <laughs> right. in a truck. And I said, that's what you need to be talking about. If you do meet a girl, she has to get into a truck with you and your dad <laughs> right. and go back to your parents' house. <laughs> right. I go, that's, that's funny. That's interesting. I mean, that's you and that's, that's authentic. your- authentic. Yeah. And you know, so you know, that's the authentic, what makes you, you, and the more things you don't want anybody to know is probably the stuff you probably ought to be talking about. Right. I'm a big believer in that. And also, for the paranoid comics, it's harder for people to steal your material if it's really about you. Yeah, if right. You have, so when you get to that level of fame to where only you could say this or it's it's so ingrained in, in who you are, it really is, is tough to take. And that's the last thing any new comic should worry about. But I hear that question a lot is, you know, what if somebody steals my joke? Consider it a compliment and write another one. Well, right. You and know? I mean, it is the cardinal sin to steal somebody's joke, but it's, uh, is it the song or the songwriter? And, uh, you know, there's a lot of parallel thought out there sometimes too. Right, you know, especially like, with topical. Yeah, it's very difficult to come up. Like I remember when it was the was it the crocodile hunter? Yeah. There was a period of time. Every comic, every comic, every comic had a crocodile. A seven minute crocodile hunter. Joke. And yet, and, yeah. and a lot of these were really good original comics, mm-hmm. and it drove them nuts. Yeah. Because they knew that. Yeah. It's almost become a hack premise, and the guy's you know famous six months now, and uh, and they say, well, yeah, but mine's different because right. But you know, but if it's about you, you can't you know. And it's not only is it harder to steal, and it's it's authentic, but you there's a lot of advantage to writing from your own point of view. Right. One like it's it can set up the next few jokes down the road. It can set something that happens in the last part of your act. You know, I always encourage people to start off with a few jokes that really, it could be about whatever, but it's showing how you process or how you view something so they can get your point of view early in your set. And as soon as they can get your point of view, they can get every joke you tell. Well, you know, you know what I mean? the, the master of all time, and it, this is way before my time, but I just watched, you know, tapes and stuff. Jack Benny. You knew Jack Benny was cheap and you knew he was coward and you knew mm-hmm. he just ran his mind. You know, he had a, such a strong character built that he could write these incredible jokes, you know, or his staff or whatever. Like, I remember one, he somebody was on his radio show and he said something to Jack and Jack says, I don't know why I don't slap you in the face. <laughs> and one of the other guys says, because you're a coward. Goes, oh, that's right. <laughs> and <laughs> another one, there was like, a, he was he was went to a, this is a television show and he was at a restaurant and he ordered something and the, the guy says, can I see an ID? And, you know, he's always acting like he was 39, and he has this real smug look on his face, and he turns to the audience, and he sticks out his tongue, and he's just, and then the guy goes, because we have a senior citizen's discount, <laughs> you know, and it's just, but it was the character. Right, I mean, right. it was just the character that you can really sink into. That's awesome. Now, let me ask you, when you when you started comedy, where were you when you started your comedy, and, and when you first started, did you feel like show business in a bigger broader aspect like it is now writing for shows and things was something that would be on your radar or was it 
the typical beginning comic. I'm just going to serve myself, and this is what I got. Yeah, I just wanted to be a comedian, and uh, but it's funny. You don't you learn things about yourself as you go, and as I said, you know, I would start writing with other comics, and I learned quickly. And this is something that you know you learn. To me, in comedy, there's two things: you're you got to perform, and you have to write, and everybody has to do both those. But almost everyone leans one way or the other. <laughs> Either somebody's just getting by with mediocre material, but just selling Sounds it, like and a, dancing yeah. around. <laughs> right. They're a performer. Yeah, and then there's other guys like me. I just stood up there, flat-footed. You know, I didn't even take the mic out of the stand half the time, and I just told well-written jokes, you know, and that's what I, and what I learned is I would start writing for just other comics. I received no more pleasure out of me telling the joke than hearing them tell the joke I wrote. In some ways, I enjoyed it more uh-huh. when they did it because I could sit back and appreciate it and things like that. And just little things like that, you start to realize, I'm a writer. This is, I'm really, what I really am is a writer and stand-up is my vehicle to be able to write. Um, you know, I've given away jokes, like I did the, I was the performer at the governor's inauguration uh, in Indiana a few years ago. I did my history thing. And the guy who hooked me up was a kind of a personality on that. And I wrote like seven or eight monologue jokes about current, that's when, uh, I forget the Chicago governor at the time, but with the f- big hair that went to jail. Or, right, right. Well, one of the many. Yeah, Chicago. right. And, <laughs> yeah. and Sarah Palin had just kind of come mm-hmm. to prominence. and That's a great time for comedy. Though. Yeah, right. And I had like six or eight jokes that I could have just led with. I just gave to this guy because I appreciate, because he had to get up there and, and they killed for him. And at no point did I think, Oh, I didn't. I was just happy. Happy they worked. And that's the other thing. You know, I see some comedians or whatever who are writing for others to to make money because they need money or whatever. But it burns them when that's their laugh they hear. You know, it just they can't. That should be me. You know, whatever. I've never felt that way. I, you know, in fact, as soon as I could stop performing and just only write, (laughs) I did so. Yeah. You know, and it's and you learn that. But other people. You know, a lot of comics. You'll if you get into comedy for a while, you'll you'll see that a lot of people steal material, and they're almost always what you would call flamboyant performers, or mm-hmm. because they don't care about the writing, they just want to perform, and they just need something to feed that mechanism. Right. And those tend to be, you never really see a a clever, flat-footed comic stealing material. No, <laughs> because what would be the point? The right. point is to develop this joke and perform it. Right. Where the guy that's you know, turning around and shaking his butt at the audience, he, he'll he steal a joke because that's not the point. And he doesn't value the joke. He the, doesn't the, va- the value is placed completely on the performance and yes. not the writing. Yes. And it is, it, it, I've done it long enough, you know, 23 years, where I definitely notice, I mean, there's a handful that can do both. Right. You know, when I see Tim Hawkins, here's a guy who writes incrementally and adds stuff a new hour every year. But he can also perform it really well, and that's that's a pretty rare. Yeah, Jeff Foxworthy can do both. He, yeah, he's a great writer. When I've worked with him on those shows, and we had to come up like on Foxworthy's Big Night Out, we had to have a monologue. They're always his premises. He'd give you the premise and the five best jokes that were going to be in it, and, right. <laughs> and you would just, and then you know he'd have to go shoot a promo, and you'd try to help him finish it or whatever. But you know. I would when I would work with him, I'd like, why am I even here? Right, it's <laughs> you know? got a, both things going fully but, functional, huh? But but you know, I remember when I first started writing on tele- like the Foxworthy Big Night Out. A lot of the guys that were writers for the sketches, 
on that were Mad TV guys. That's right, and even a couple of the actresses. One of the actresses I remember too. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, but when I started hanging out with comedy writers, I realized these are my people. Like comedians, I've always liked comedians. I've always been friends, with, but they're always on. You go to a restaurant, they're trying to make the waitress laugh. There, there was right. a bit of it. It drove me nuts. But when I got around com- comedy writers, professional comedy writers, it's like, you know, what was that old Blind Melon video when that girl's the, the bee, bee? And at the end, she ends up with her pee. That's how I felt. It's like, oh, this <laughs> is what – they're all funny. You sit down and you have – but nobody's on. Nobody – it's not about them because right. by nature, you're in the – customer service (laughs) it's about somebody else and i was like okay this is what i am i'm a funny guy who likes to just write and doesn't like attention well that's not a bad thing no that's a good thing (laughs) and i know for sure we've got people listening that think and i I get asked this quite a bit is how do you start writing for somebody else maybe they've and sometimes at a very beginning level they want to write for somebody else there's you know obviously different levels of ability but what's the first step or a few things people would think about on that road well that's that's a good question you know the first step is if you're really just beginning don't expect to get paid if you're not willing to get paid or not expecting to get paid you can find people to write for because you know when you like a professional baseball player when they played little league nobody paid them they right. had to develop the right. skill. And yet in comedy, people don't think, well, I've been an open mic for two weeks, and if I'm going to write a joke for somebody, they should. No, you're not a professional yet. You right. are learning the craft. And you and there's no other way to learn the craft than to write jokes, and you hear them performed. And over the time, you start, like a comedian, you and I could sit down, and somebody could show us 10 jokes, 10 stand-up jokes. And you and let's say five have been proven to get laughs and five weren't, but we'd never heard it. Mm-hmm. You and I would, with 85 to 90% accuracy, could look at those and tell you exactly which ones would work in front of an audience. And yet, if they asked us how we knew, we would never be able to explain it. Yeah, It's just a skill we've developed. So if you're going to start to be a writer, you know, stand-up obviously is a great, a great vehicle. Even if you don't want to be, unless you're just, completely stage fright, you know. But if you can get up there, you write, perform, you learn. But if you, even if you didn't want to do that, you just need to find somebody who has to perform new material oh, every wow. week. Uh-huh. Like, you know, like Bob Zaney, perhaps. I mean, just if, for those who don't know him, he has a weekly segment on Bob and Tom where he has to write jokes about topical things. Well, you could email him and say, hey, I don't expect you to pay me anything, but I'm just I'm trying to learn to write jokes. And here are five jokes about this week's current events. I mean, I'm I'm not speaking for Bob. Yeah. I don't know if he wants yeah. that or not. Don't be looking at Bob Zaney at Zaney.com. Right. <laughs> you could. I don't know, but I'm yeah. just saying. You know, if I when I was doing my weekly segment, if somebody would have started, because they wouldn't have known what I was going to write about because of history. But if you know, if they would have said, "Hey, here's this or that," and I don't want anything. You know, people will do that, or even comedians. You know, if you didn't want to perform, but you could just start writing jokes and just say, "Hey, I just want to be a joke writer. I I need to develop the skills." You know, you find an open micer even that's good. That's you know the good open micer that's right. about to move up. And just say, "Hey, I noticed I? you're a great performer, but you're like, no, no, no. I mean, you know, they're going to say, "Listen, could I right. could I write a joke for you just to see if it's." You know, if you think it's funny first, and then 
it can be yours and I could hear you perform it and I'll learn to tune my ear to uh, right you know I heard you know something like a, a professional musician can see a uh, a singer and they can tell the difference between two singers that I think are both good they could point and say that one it could be a professional and that one can't and right. I would never know the difference and it's, and it's the same way with comedy but it only comes through writing and hearing it performed or performing it in front of an audience there's no yeah the audience is the until you it's like speaking in the like a forest if, if nobody hears it there's no proof that it was said an audience will give you the proof with their laughter if it's strong or not if you we, we can get a whole hour about good audiences and bad audiences right. but it you, you should know when you write it, if you've been writing for a while, you've got the techniques there, you've got the good premise, you've got a good twist. It should work, but you really don't know until you get in front of that crowd. Right. And an audiences are shockingly consistent. No matter what part of the country, like when I would perform stand-up, you know, some nights, you know, you just hit it out of the park, and other nights, you just struggle to make your time. But in both nights, if you were going to look at it like a little bar graph that went up and down in terms of laughs, the same jokes would hit the high points and the same. And so even though you know the whole night was better or worse, it's like the stock market when it's up yeah, or down, yeah. but it's, the, the ticker is still, uh, audiences are consistent. You can learn, you know, and, and as you perform, you, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can perform in New York or you can perform in Chicago or you can perform in a little town in Iowa. And it's these same jokes. Unless the strong jokes always stand out. Yeah. And, and the weak ones are always the weakest. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and Which yeah. gives you your homework to do after you've done your sets long enough to get those weak ones up to the strong, you know. And then that will, that will make your set more consistent over time. I think the great comics don't settle for those okay laughs when they're building that strong hour. It's the weakest one has to go and you get a strong one in there. Right. And, and then go back, clear back to the economy of words, you start, as you do it, yeah, especially when you're an open micer, you tell a joke, and it should have been funny, but it wasn't. And yet, if you don't throw it away, if you reword it, it'll become. And see, that's part of the skill in writing is, uh, you know, two extra words will screw you up, and and there's no way to know that. that a novice doesn't know that. No, and plus, a novice isn't as skilled delivering the material and haven't found their voice and all those things. So the timing will help that joke as their writing skills gets better to help those jokes too. That's right, yeah. yeah. I'm a big big believer never throwing anything out, not falling in love with anything, but never throwing anything out because a few years down the line it might make more sense for me to do this joke. Uh, I might have a better delivery, I might be able to sell it better, I might be able to write it better. For me the premises were always the toughest things to come up with, right, which I think right. is, is true of most all comics. So if I've got one, the punchline I'll find. I'll keep, it, I'll keep working on it as much as it deserves the work. And you know, right, and then sometimes it's just you don't know the the wording, why it wasn't, or like I know as comics, just as I would sit down with other comics even starting out, but it never changes. You say, I think there's something funny about this. And you're like, yeah, but, but, but you couldn't get a laugh on stage yet, but there is right. something funny. And then you go, okay, and, then, and then, then you become a wordsmith and maybe it takes 10 jokes to mine that funny out. Maybe it took two, maybe it took 30, and it probably depends on how long you've been doing it and mm -hmm. how lucky you get and all those things. But, you know, there's 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 something funny about it, and then there's a polished joke, and those are, you know. you got to connect those dots. Yeah. Right, I'm going to ask you a couple of tip questions here. 
Um, what tip would you give? And like I say, we've got a double audience on this one. We've got speakers and comics, but putting new material into your already pretty familiar set. Like I had this question recently and I answered it in my own way, but say I've been doing a half hour for a while or maybe I've got my one hour presentation. All of a sudden I've got this idea for a comedy nugget to put in there. Do you have any advice for how to put it in there to where it has the most chance to succeed or, you know, do you, how would you do it? Like say, say you had how do your you hour, intro, how your, do you intro new material? Yeah, your hour history, speech, presentation, funny program. Mm-hmm. Now you've got this whole new chunk you want to put in there. Where would you put it? How would you work it in? Well, there's two or three kind of ways to do that. The first is some people just lead with it, especially if you're more seasoned, you can get away. If you're an open micer, you're just trying to fight for survival right. up there and, and you want to put it in after a, a good joke later. Mm-hmm. You, after the the audience is bought into, Who okay, this guy's good, we can trust him. And then, and if you have two or three funny ones, that's a great place to put it because then if it clinks, you can make some funny little line of, oh, that one stunk. They'll laugh because you're already funny. And then you go right into another proven good one. So that was typically my style on that. I know a lot of people who they just open with it. And if it's strong enough to get that opening line. They just open with it and, and just because it's on their mind. And, you know, but that that's a good comic because they that knows that I have the confidence that, you know, I can save myself after mm-hmm. this. But honestly, where I found it was the best, and this is, you know, this is if you're doing clubs or, you know, where you really have, if you're an open micer and you get up once a week or whatever, you just, you probably got to put it in there somewhere. But if you have more time where you're doing a lot of comedy or a lot of presentations or whatever, just meditate on it. Just know, just think about the material and like someday I got to get it in. Where I found where it would really work is where I hadn't even written it down yet. It just kind of came to me and I was thinking, okay, I got to get that in there one of these days. And then I'd have a really good audience. And then before I even knew it in the flow, I would say it. And then it would always get a good laugh and it was like, okay, now that's where it goes. And then and it just, and you know. And that's part of your instinct from over years. It's instinct yeah. and it's, because uh, you know, I used to have this, re- as I was getting out of comedy, I would still get these like corporate shows and things like that that I just didn't want to turn down, but I might not have performed for two months right. prior oh, to tough. that. And, and I would have these reoccurring nightmares like literal right. nightmares. I've, I've had two comedy reoccurring nightmares. Right. The first is this one where I would uh, get up there and not be able to remember my act. And honestly, sometimes I couldn't remember my act in real life mm-hmm. until I got up there. But it always clicked. Once I got up there, it was just like somebody hit play on a recorder and once it just always clicked. The other reoccurring nightmare I had is like early in my career, my act was kind of dirty and then I would Later, even when I was out, I'd have this dream that my pastor was in the audience <laughs> watching me get my dirty. I don't know why that would. I'll tell you my recurring <laughs> comedy dream because it just reminded me of it. And uh, I still might get this twice or three times a year. Uh, it, it's still the Johnny Carson show in my dream, even though he's moved on, right? But I get my break on the Johnny Carson show. I come out and I step on the drapes. <laughs> and the, the rod on the top that's holding all those drapes comes down <laughs> and it knocks me unconscious. Yeah. And I wake up the next day looking at a paper that says, comic missed his big chance. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. that's the kind of luck I have. But at least once or twice a year I have that dream. And it's still Johnny Carson. It's still the same curtain that he had. And it's still it's still it's scary. Like, yeah, you know, that fear of forgetting. Well, I think a lot of speakers, a lot of comics have that fear to a degree. 
you know, we had a, a lady on a recent podcast ask if it's if it's a cardinal sin, even when you're beginning to have note cards on the side. I'm like, not not at the beginning, but eventually you want to trust yourself and know it inside and out, and and know how to get from one bit to another, regardless of where your mind's going, so that you don't. The only time you forget stuff is when you stress out. You so know, if you have the comfort and the confidence in it, you should always have it. You know, it's funny when I was, uh, like I said, toward the end when it'd be like months between performing or whatever. I would always bring a set list with me and always stick it up there on the uh-huh. stool as comfort. Just, well, just out of, I just because I had those nightmares that I was not going to be able to remember my act. And literally, I'd be driving in and I couldn't remember my act. And I'm like, how is this going to work? And then you never going to forget. I I probably haven't done it in a year or two. I bet I could get up and. Like, I don't feel like I could right now, mm-hmm. but I bet if you introduced me and I walked <laughs> on stage, it would just start rolling it's, out of me. It's one of those weird things when they call your number. You, well, I heard this about athletes recently, and I think it's true of performers and other, other people. When you know your stuff so well that it's second nature, with athletes, they know all the skills, they've done all the drills, so they just, they're just they playing the game now. Right. And you see it with quarterbacks, the game slows down for them, like Peyton or Tom Brady and these guys. They can see stuff before it even happens. Right. With years of experience, you've kind of got that built in, too, and it's like you put on the cleats or you put on your show shoes or whatever, and you go out, and boom, you nail it. But it's, it's because you've done it so much. Well, some of the best jokes I ever wrote are probably the best tags I ever wrote. You just made up on the spot in front of the audience. And it was just like, because... They were flowing. You were in it, and oh yeah, the, the, the laughter was so long that you had time to think for once. Yeah, you and ever you, heard a comic say to somebody, "Hey, write, write that, that down, down for," yeah. and you think they're just making a j- no? <laughs> it's like I just made that up. It got a huge <laughs> laugh, and I got thirty-five more minutes to go, and I don't want to forget yeah. it when I get off the stage. And you do, you, if you don't get somebody to write it down, you do forget it. It's yeah. funny. Yeah, some of definitely my best tags, and sometimes that one tagline. If if you're a speaker listening, and don't know what we're talking about with taglines. You got the setup, punchline, then any line that comes right after the punchline is a tagline. And I've had taglines that have come up that have started a whole new twist on that premise, you know, and it's taken that joke three three more laughs further. Right. And sometimes that last, it, you know, so you get these jokes that start out as a 20-second joke that evolve into six-minute bits because you just give yourself the permission to take it one step further. Yeah. And I think with the um, the speakers that are listening, when you're in your programs and you've got the, you know, the signature stories that have a laugh or whatever, thinking about, you know, one thing I want you to take away from this podcast episode is is maybe to get there a little quicker, that a longer story isn't necessarily a better story. Once you know what the takeaway from that story is and the funny part, really anything before that that gets in the way of that you need to get rid of. And sometimes, as I know, because I do speaking and comedy, and so I can see it both ways. And sometimes when I'm speaking, I get more comfortable just kind of getting, I wouldn't say lazy, but it is. I kind of get lazy with the story because I know the payoff's there. Yeah, right. And I know uh, an audience that's sitting through five speeches in a row will love any comedy. And so I know I've got some comedy at the end. I'm going to be more wordy, and, and I, I know from a comic I shouldn't do that, and I don't do that on the comedy stage. So when you write for all these different types, you got TV, you got people that right. you write for, roast, Is there are there any kind of rules that you have on yourself for you know, getting to the punchline quick, or, or what, what are your... You know, if I was a speaker, like... Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if it's a motivational speaker or a business speaker or whatever. Now we call ourselves content deliverers and thought leaders. <laughs> wow. I, <laughs> I, that must pay much better. <laughs> I think that's the idea behind uh, it. But yeah, motivational um, speaker. But you know, work. know who I would study? I would study Ron White. And only because, regardless of what you think of the material or whatever, is he looks like he's meandering on stage. He gives the, if, he looks like he's just half drunk meandering on stage 
but I used to work with Ron a lot. Uh, I would open, you know, before Ron was famous, he was just a headliner in clubs, mm-hmm. and I was middle in clubs at that time. So I've seen Ron's act a lot back in those days, and, and not as much now, but really love it. And he's a, a, a perfectionist when it comes to wording and pauses and things like that. But I bet if you started typing that up, you'd be shocked how few words mm-hmm. are in that. Now, he has a, a longer pause, a, a slower cadence, so it feels, but there's not a wasted word. No wasted words. And the laughs throughout the story are there. Yes. Or, you know, another one, if you want to go old school, is Woody Allen. If you studied Woody Allen and Ron White, you would see there's two completely different characters being presented here. and But yet their stand-up, both seems like they're just telling stories. But if you started counting the laughs in those stories and the amount of words, very tight. Both mm-hmm. of them are very tight. So, I mean, that's, I mean, it, there's probably, you know, no rule of thumb. I would always say personally is uh, it's kind of like however much you, the punchline is what you're paying them. And, and the longer, the bigger the punchline, the more work they're willing to do, and work is just listening to you not say something funny. Right. And so, you know, if you're going to pay them a quarter, they better sit there 10 seconds. Right, right. If you're going to pay them a million dollars, maybe you can go 10 you minutes, I get, you know, but, but most of us don't have a million dollar punchline. We got a <laughs> maybe a hundred dollar punchline, so you better right. <laughs> move them along pretty quick. That's a great way to look at it, too. And, and that's true. You know, the, 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 the buildup should not be greater than the payoff. If we just put it in those words, it shouldn't take so much time to set something up and the payoff so short, the audience gets disengaged if there's too much work to get there. Well, or they get lost on what you were trying to, your premise really should be so tight that the next thing should just be the laugh. It's courteous. I mean, if you're at a restaurant, how long do you want to wait for your food? If you're at a really nice restaurant, you're willing to wait longer. At McDonald's, if you wait five minutes, you're Not furious. Right <laughs> yeah, you know, true. so that's great. Or if you're pumping gas, I mean, I don't want to have to run in and tell the guy, "Hey, I need my gas." You know, right? And that's that's how we are now, and that's you know, it's just courteous to the audience. Like it, you owe it to the audience to take out all words that aren't necessary. Love it. That, that I think it's great. We might just leave it there. Uh, I think both the, everybody listening today should have got something some takeaways out of that. Um, thank you for being here. What's the next thing? I know you're working on a book right now. I basically do Christian writing now, but not even funny, just uh, just doctrine. So I've got kind of taken a little break. I do some comedy writing. I don't know when our next uh, American Bible challenge is, but that's been my latest project. And you know, it's always looking forward to little TV shows that pop up here and there. So There you go, guys. So keep an eye out for him in the rolling credits at the end. As long, <laughs> yeah, as, yeah, right. as, long as the payoff is equal to the setup, he's going to be working for quite a time. Scott Dunn, thank you very much for sitting in with us today. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit schooloflaps.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny.